These are some of the lyrics to Aaron's Party, the 2000 single from then 12-year-old Aaron Carter. I always try to be the flyest kid on the block, the popular one with the rising stock. So that's when I had this bright idea, throw the party of the month, nah, the party of the year. All the fine girls couldn't turn it down. Now all I got to do is get my parents out. Should I send them to a movie? No, send them to a show. Let me think, hmm, it's gotta be long though. I said, mom and dad, yo, why are you sitting home? It's a Friday night, have you seen Aunt Joan? And don't worry about staying out too long. Don't fuss over me, I'll be fine alone. And uh, it's bad writing, right? I mean, right? But I don't know. My son and I have been listening to the song as a joke lately. And as bad as it seems to be, we laugh at it every single time. We know all the lyrics, and it's funny, and it's fun, and it's weirdly addictive. So maybe next time you say, ah, that sucks about someone's writing, reconsider. Maybe it's just unorthodox, or maybe it's just the way you read it. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is David Jordan, the co-author of former Pittsburgh Pirate slugger Dave Parker's new autobiography, Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. This is episode number 209. Let's sing some Yang. All right, well, uh, Dave, I always think of, when I'm trying to think of book ideas, I always have three criteria, which is number one, would hold my interest for two years. Number two, is someone else done it? And number three, will it sell? And guys like Dave Parker, from a sales standpoint, are confusing because there's like this, mm-hmm. this genre of guys, Dave, the Dave Parkers, the Dwight Evans, the Jim Rice, guys who are like yeah. really great, but they're not all time, all time, all time, all time greats. And yes. As time moves on, we tend to sort of set those guys aside and move on to the next generation, just how it works. Why do a Dave Parker book? We did a Dave Parker book, A, because he had been trying to get a book off the ground for a better part of 20 years. And he had gone through three or four sets of writers. And then somebody kind of brought me into the fold because they had read my previous book, uh, Fastball John. And they were basically like, you know, you have a handle on the 70s. Parker wants to do a book. He went to Parker and said, nobody knows who this guy is, but I know in my heart he can get it done. Uh, Parker and I basically had a chat for about four months going back and forth, mainly talking about the NFL because Parker was a uh, a standout football player in high school. And to this day, he still considers himself a football player who's just really good at baseball. It's very happy Gilmore-esque in that sense. We made it the book about more than just Parker. We made it about the peak of black baseball and the percentage of uh, black baseball players was at its peak in the mid 70s write it, you know, when Parker was a big superstar. You're this guy, you've written one book. Someone's like, hey, Dave Parker wants to do a book. It hasn't gone well for him so far, blah, 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 blah. Do you sit down with him in person? Do you come with a game plan? Like, how do you actually present yourself to him? I had a game plan. And, and here's why it, it worked in, to, be, to begin with. Parker and John D'Aquisto, my, my previous subject, born in the same year. They finished high school the same year. They were both drafted in the 1970 uh, draft. And they both uh, made their major league debuts in 1973. So I had all the basic research was, was already there for me. And it just seemed like it really was a, a, a pretty significant time 
in baseball, at least among black players. And we and we both thought that there was going to be some sort of push for this before it did end up happening. It's interesting because I don't think of books from the athlete's perspective very often. And, you know, like when I go in to write a book, it's a nightmare. It's two years of a nightmare, right? Because I'm sitting down every day and I'm writing it every day and I'm reporting it every day. And it's a fucking grind Mm -hmm. for Dave Parker himself. Is it a grind or is it just, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to talk to Dave for hours every day and he'll record my thoughts and then he'll put in my words. Like, what is it for him to do the book? We we would speak every other, like every every other day for like 30 minutes. And then on weekends, we'd have our, our Saturday morning hour long chat. And then, you know, after a couple of months, I'd go out and see him and we would sit and talk. We would watch games together. I mean, watching the 1979 World Series with Dave Park was like watching Goodfellas with Martin Scorsese right next to you. And uh, so he was giving me an incredible director's commentary of sorts. Of course. So I'd go back home. And then here was the other thing. He had the Pittsburgh Pirates basically open the Rolodex. And I took a page out of your book and I spoke to about 75 players, coaches, um, high school athletes, high school teammates, high school teachers, high school coaches, the guy's guidance counselor, um, minor league managers, his agent. So I ended up getting so many different perspectives that I would go back to Dave and I would say, tell me about this story down in Bradenton or tell me about this story in Salem, Virginia. What you talk about very often is that the best stories are told by those who maybe played for a year at the major league level or maybe played two years in an organization. You know, George Brett has a million memories stacked one upon the other. You know, a guy who played at, um, at Bradenton Rookie League for one season and, and was with Dave Parker in spring training, he has five memories. And, he, and, and they're indelible on, you know, in, on his brain. They're basically, uh, he has them and he knows them by heart and he tells them like every day. So you are writing Dave Parker's autobiography. It's by Dave Parker and Dave Jordan. So you are writing his autobiography and you're getting stories from other people. And I'm sure you got stories. I'm sure Omar Marino or someone was like, oh, there was this time, blah, blah, blah. And Dave Parker's like, I don't, I don't really remember that. But is it okay in this format to take an Omar Marino story, run it by Dave Parker? Dave Parker says, I'm sure that happens. And you put it in Dave Parker's words, so to speak. Well, no, we, we tried to keep this as, as genuine as possible in Parker's voice. But the great thing was all the fact checking I was able to, to provide that he would go to him and like, oh, I remember that now. That, that was something that, that did happen. But here's what really happened. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about, we, we talked about, you know, the, the writing aspect of it was we utilized popular music. And I and I had done this with Johnny D'Aquisto on Fastball John is I would play them a song. And it would kind of open a memory box. And it wasn't like playing Satisfaction, because you could have heard that yesterday. But I would play something like, you know, for, for D'Aquisto, it was Susie Quattro, Stumbling In. Our love is alive. And so we begin. And the strategy is that you take these songs that were popular for three weeks and then never played again. And they become time capsules. So you do that. And, and for anybody, but for ballplayers as well, who are very much into music, I found a lot of songs that were like R&B songs that were very popular in the early 70s for a month and then just fell off the face of the earth. So then when I play those songs for me, he could, he could say, oh, that was 1971. That was Salem, Virginia. I was in high A ball and me and Satch, my roommate, would go to Waffle House afterwards and then watch Soul Train. And it just opened up all these memories for these guys. So it was a device that I've utilized that I think is very effective. Wait, wait. So you would actually like, are right, you're sitting with Dave Parker or you're zooming with him or calling with him, whatever. Yeah. And you would just be like, Oh, I found this song from 1976. It's basically, Hey, 
There's this uh, song from 1974, My Mistake. It was a duet between Diana Ross and Marvin Gaye that nobody's heard in 20 years. And I'd play it for him. He's like, oh, I remember that. I used to play that on the 8-track in, in, in my car. You know, here's where I was and blah, blah, blah. And we'd begin to put puzzle pieces together. I had David Wright's biographer on. David Wright wrote an autobiography and I had the author yep. with him. And there's this weird balance, right, of you have to write in someone's voice, but you don't want it to become almost like a parody of that guy and the way he talks. So how do you go about writing in someone else's voice? That's a great question. And, and, and my, my thought is very simple. It's like, I think the best, the very best author collaborators, you know, need to possess an element of spe speech pathology to it. You know, they have to be able to recognize, does the subject author speak in contractions? Do they, and even more so, do they speak in absolutes? You have to understand the patterns of, of how they communicate with, with people in their, in, their, in their spoken word. And you have to nail that. And that, that also speaks to listening, which is the most underutilized you know, skill set for, for writers. They have to just sit there and just listen. I, I'm fairly good at, at recognizing cadences and things of that nature and, and be able to, to replicate their voice and, and everything after a certain time. So that, that, that comes easy to me. But you know, with Parker, it was just a matter of understanding how he spokes and how he speaks and how he communicates with people. So it's it. this is actually weird. I've never even thought about this until this very moment, right? Okay. I talk to you and I'm like, yeah, blah, 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 blah. But I don't actually yep. write that way. And no. so you're trying to write as Dave Parker's voice, but Dave Parker actually isn't a writer. So he doesn't have a writing voice. So in a weird way, you're trying to, it needs to be conversational, but it can't yes. be ludicrous. Like that seems actually really interesting because he doesn't write. He's not a writer. So no, no we just, <laughs> I, I try to capture his voice. You know, and and the greatest compliment I can get and, and that I've gotten on, on some of the Amazon reviews, it's like people people say, you know, I feel like I'm sitting next to my fun uncle who's just telling me stories. That's cool. When you are deep, deep into it and you're deep, deep, deep into it, do you find yourself getting lost in the baseball? Do you become a fan again? Do you how much of your fan hat was on sort of going through the day by days of the Pittsburgh Pirates of that era? You want to know what I got lost in? I got lost in the stories of Parker with his buddies. I got lost in hanging out in, in driving down Penn Avenue in Pennsylvania in Parker's Benz, listening to P-Funk with him and Milner. And I'm sitting in the back. I, I, I got lost in how much these guys loved each other and wanted to hang out with each other. You know, um, stories of Willie Stargell taking 15 guys out to, um, to, a, to, a, to a steak place in Chicago and how it's so much different than today where, you know, Eric used the phrase uh, was like 25 calves for 25 players. Right. And back then the Pirates were a family. And that was instilled by the organization because they created a Dodger Town type facility in um, in Bradenton, Florida, during spring training, where they would basically, you know, it was one part a baseball facility and one part three star Holiday Inn. They lived together, they ate together, they played together, they hung out together. So they really had a family atmosphere in Pittsburgh for many years, even before 1979. And I found that fascinating. How much these guys loved each other, and Parker wanted to write the book. And he wanted to spread some sunshine on some of those other guys who were amazing, dynamic athletes who may not have made it. You were not a ghostwriter because your name's on the book, but as a co-author of a book, Dave Parker has a goal, what he wants to do. And maybe as a writer, you're like, no, I kind of want to, I want to explore X more. I want to explore more and more. And Dave Parker's like, well, I really want is a love letter to John Milner and Ed I. Are you at his whim, pretty much his mercy as far as where the book is going to go? Or can you steer it in your own direction? It depends on, on the subject author, but I'll be very honest, Dave 
basically put it in my hands. There were a few times where he would say, I don't want to talk about that or whatever. That really didn't come up. He wanted to be, you know, completely honest with what happened in his life and in his career. So everything kind of fell into that. Whatever we could do to shed light on his brothers and whatever we could do to illustrate what was important to him in baseball was what Parker wanted to do. For people who don't know, he was a, a major part and name 1983, the Pittsburgh uh, trials, drug trials, blah, 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 with cocaine and a lot of guys were involved. Is he an open book about that stuff or do you have to be like, Dave, I need, I can't, we kind of need to talk about this. When we talked about, you know, the, the book, I said, it's got to be honest, you know, because people, because there are other guys who have written books who were involved in those trials who kind of shied away from it or ignored it, didn't talk about it. And he just opened his arms and was like, I'm right here. You know, like Keith Hernandez, getting him to talk about is almost impossible. Just as an example. Impossible. Another book. What is it about Parker is it, I haven't even meant, I mean, I've kind of buried the lead here that he's, he's had Parkinson's for the, you know, almost a decade now or seven years now. Do you think it comes with sort of the fearlessness in a way that comes with mortality? Why so willing to discuss these things? We didn't want to rewrite Cocaine 7, the Cocaine 7 book that had come out like 13 years ago. We didn't want to rewrite that. I didn't even know that was a book. I had no idea there was a cocaine trial book that came out. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was the, the trial of the Cocaine 7 in Pittsburgh. And um, it was a pretty good book. And, and Parker actually contributed to that. But- we respected the fact that it existed in, in this universe, uh, the Cobra universe. So we wanted to make sure that we, you know, acknowledged and, and answered some questions, some lingering questions from that book. And, and he just wanted to set the record straight. And if that meant telling the truth, he told the truth. I find something sad in the, uh, there is something sad about athletes looking back. And like you said, like, it was a freaking glorious time and Dave Parker was a big deal and the Rolls Royces and hanging out with his friends and traveling and they're just a cultural phenomenon and the sister sled yep. song and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And now he's kind of an old man and he's an old man with an illness. And um, is there a sadness that comes with taking on this project? I mean, there's, I guess there's a little wistfulness because of his old age and, and, and his ailment and whatnot. But for the most part, he, Dave Parker was somebody who got everything he wanted out of life. And I'm not talking about the Pirates coming in second place from 76 to 78. He got everything he wanted out of life from the age of 12, with the exception of maybe a, um, a, a little bit of, of his senior year and, and you know, six, uh, four months in double uh, A. He got everything he wanted from the age of 12 to the age of 39. He's pretty satisfied. He's been married for, God, like 37 years. And all, all his kids are, are healthy and well. He has his life and, and he's, he's happy. He just wanted, he wanted a book. Everybody else has a book. I want a book. So every now and then some athlete will be like, Hey, I really want to write a book and write a book with me. And um, I don't really do books with athletes. Just, it's not something that interests right. me personally. And I said to this one guy, I was like, just, you know, writing a book is a pain in the ass. Like it's hard and it takes time and blah, blah. And he goes, yeah, I didn't really think about that. I got to think about this a little more. And I haven't heard from him since. Why do you think these guys want to write books? Like, why is Dave Parker? I get it. You're looking back at your life and blah, but like, why does he want to write a book? There are some people out there that they had all this relevance at one time. And then, you know, maybe they, they can, they, they go to a Kroger or they, or they go to a Safeway and, and nobody recognizes them. And they're like, wait a minute, how does that work? I was on the Dinosaur Show and how I can I'm walk I'm up and down the aisles and nobody says a word to me. And that, that's not Parker's situation, but I, I could see some guys thinking, you know what? The world needs to know my story. Yeah. And after being a someone who, you know, the world doted on them for decades, and then one day they're not, they could be like, you know what? I, I think the world needs to remember me. And this is how we're going to do it. You don't think he has that in him at all? I used to be the shit. And now 
I'm not the shit. And there's just something sad about that. Yeah, like, do you, does Parker not have that in him at all? I don't think so because I, I spent a week with him and basically it, it meant, you know, getting to his house at nine o'clock and being there till five. And every other day, 10 baseball cards came in the mail. Strangers just send him stuff with his face on it. And it was just, he had to deal with, not even had to deal with that, but he's just, he's signing stuff every day for fans. And like, if something happens in baseball, he'll get a call from, you know, the local uh, reporters in Cincinnati. Hey Dave, what's your take on this? He has a relationship with uh, ownership in Cincinnati. He can go to any game he wants and, and he's the Cobra, you know, and he, and he can't really, yeah. it's tough for him to walk through a crowd in Cincinnati without somebody saying, Hey, there's the Cobra. He still has this local relevance that, that makes him something. He played for the Pirates for a long time, the Reds for a good span, two years in Oakland, a season in Milwaukee. He played for the Angels and the Blue Jays, over. You did not devote a ton of time to the last few years of his career. I actually find downfalls really kind of interesting and final days kind of interesting. The manuscript that we submitted was 229,000 words. Holy shit, what? 229,000 words. Wait, 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 time out. We need to explore this. You hand in this manuscript. It's 229. Yes. So for people listening... I would say my average book length is 140,000, right? Once Walter Payton was 160, I think. 229,000 is a, when you hand that in, are you aware there's no way they're running 229,000 words or are you like, this is great, don't change a word? From what I was told, the publisher really extended themselves to make sure that we were with them. So, you know, for, for what their generosity in that sense, for them, uh, we wanted to give them, you know, what they paid for. You, you wanted the book. You really wanted us. Here's the book. And the guy just kind of started, you know, my, my editor, you know, God bless him. He just started laughing. It's like, we can't publish this. It's just unit. The, the, the unit cost is going to be way too high. And he gave us the, the freedom to put, to police ourselves. And before I had done anything, there was a, a baseball uh, books group on Facebook. So I conducted an anecdotal survey about a hundred of them. And I said, Dave Parker's writing a book. What do you want to hear about? They all said the Pittsburgh pirates is minor league years. And the drug trials. What does the drug trials mean? It means the Cincinnati Reds. Not so many people were clamoring to hear about Milwaukee Brewers, although it's a pretty compelling story. So we had to just, and, and everybody's heard about Kirk Gibson. Everybody's heard about, you know, Eckersley and the walk-off in, in 1988. And then 1989, the, the numerous accounts of the, uh, the Earthquake World Series have been out there. So we decided those three years needed to be kind of removed. We wanted to keep as much Pittsburgh Pirates material as possible, and more important, as much material on those early years with all the black players. The original title was Cobra, Dave Parker, and the boys at the peak of black baseball. And it just ended up changing to something else. But, you know, that that was really what the, what the story's about. All right, wait, I have some questions here. So the, the title ended up being Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. Were you initially disappointed by the change in the title? Um, they let Parker and me write a whole chapter on a minor league player. And I kept thinking about that. This guy, Charlie Howard, was in the pirate system for 12 years, and he was very much the, the black bull Durham of their minor league system. And whenever there was a star player, they made sure he was hanging out with Charlie Boo to learn how to be a big leaguer. And Parker was roomed with him just before he came to the big leagues. And we wanted to, to really convey that story and, and stories like him. And so every time I thought about something I was a little unhappy with, I said, they let me write about Charlie Boo. So... You know, I, I kind of kept that in the back of my head. And, and really, in terms of editing, they, they, they let me kind of, I had the run of the place, to be honest with you. You go from 229,000 words, which is actually one of my favorite details I've ever heard on this podcast. That is an enormous book. How many words did it wind up being? 
178. Wow. So that's a big cut. What was that like? And how do you do it? Uh, yeah, I, I agonized a little bit. I talked to Dave and, and said, here's, you know, what do you want to talk about? And he's like, I want to talk about my brothers and m- my boys. And that's what we did. We also thought at a certain point we could take, quote unquote, the lost episodes and repurpose them as articles and things like that. And we're kind of working on that right now, that at some point in the next couple of months, those chapters will appear on the Internet. So those who you were looking, waiting to hear about, you know, Parker and Mark McGuire and uh, Parker and Gary, she- raising Gary Sheffield and his fights with Bud Selig, those will be out soon. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son Emmett. And I don't know, I've kind of noticed something different about you in the year and a half since the pandemic started. I don't know what you're talking about. I can't put my finger on it, but you just seem kind of different. I got a haircut. No, that's not it. New shoes? I don't I don't think so. Oh, I know what it must be. I went to 503-sports.com and ordered a really cool Kelvin Bryant Stars jersey. I thought it was time to change my wardrobe. Time to rearrange. I guess that's it. These are my favorite conversations on this podcast by far, hands down. You hand in 229,000 words and they're like, you need to cut out a lot of this. This is too much. Because I've been through this too. I literally... I wrote my Barry Bonds book, my second book, and they're like, you need to cut 40,000 words or some crazy amount. I went through that manuscript and I was like, I was like, I was literally like, all right, I'm going to get rid of this, that here. And I'm going to get rid of this yes. here. And I was going through, I went through every page of that book, getting rid of five words here, six words here. Like I wasn't taking chunks out. I was getting rid of every excess fat I could. You really had a big amount to get rid of. Like, could you even do that? Or was it more like, all right, this chapter needs to go. This chunk needs to go. We had to remove a major, you know, for lack of a better term, a major character had to be removed because she was, she was important to him in, in uh, high school. And then she, you know, kind of, it was like his, his girlfriend from high school and he had, he had kind of a love triangle. And, and so, I mean, like when people read, read the original manuscript for like these first three high school years, this is like amazing YA historical fiction, you know, because she was so prominent in a couple of his baseball years that just for, for reasons of flow, we just had to remove her. So that took away like 10,000 words there. And then plus the Oakland and the Brewers chapters, we just had to condense. I remember when I was at Sports Illustrated and they'd cut stuff out of a story. And I'd be like, you're ruining the story. You ruined everything. This is never, now it sucks. I don't even want to see it. And then it comes out and you totally forget what was taken out. Like 10 minutes later, you're like, no, nah, people compliment you. And you're like, yeah. oh, I guess it's good. No, I'm still attached to it. <laughs> so, you know, I'm still, you know, a little annoyed. I would have loved to have this whole thing as this, this, you know, magnum opus of sorts. But, um, you know, basically you just have to, yeah, I have to kind of think in a way like an executive and a publishing executive, and they have people that they have to answer to. And as long as it's not killing the core narrative, then I just got to suck it up and, and, and just remove it. I just love the moment when your editor gets the first draft and he does a word count. Cause I've had that too. I love those moments and I wish I could see it. Mm-hmm. But, um, your, your deal was with the university of Nebraska press. I was your publisher. Yep. Um, were they attached to it before you showed up or is this something you negotiated? As I understand the history of it, that there was a previous um, a book proposal, maybe like six, seven years ago, and they were interested in it back then and it just didn't happen. So when we reissued, when, when I wrote up a, a 45 page proposal wow. um, and we resubmitted it um, to you know a bunch of publishers, they came up and they just said, we want it. And, and here's, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I knew that they were really, really invested in, in, in seeing the story come to fruition. It's not a sad book. 
and he has Parkinson's. He's had Parkinson's. It's not a sad book, but it's kind of a sad story. Like there's nothing ha 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 about a guy having Parkinson's at the, you know, and, and no. is it hard to write about something? Is there a balance you have to walk when writing about something really sad, but not wanting the story to be particularly sad? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the story about, about his, his Parkinson's issue. Uh, once we had, had uh, published the, the Clemente piece in the Sporting News, um, we ended up doing another piece where we, we wrote about the songs that he liked. And it was called the Cobra Playlist. And that ended up in the Hardball Times. Three days later, I get a call from MLB. And they're like, we're thinking of throwing on the idea of a Parker documentary. And I was a little bittersweet about it. And I, and I thought, you know, we're not going to get paid for that. I'm not going to ask about that. I'm just going to ask them that, you know, when we publish the book, please keep running the documentary. And um, they did an amazing job with it. And basically, I was bittersweet. I was like, what the hell? Is my book going to be a 250-page book report of an MLB documentary? Because they do a fabulous job with those. Mm-hmm. But they basically spent the whole, you know, about 30% of it was on Dave's Parkinson's. And so once I saw that, I realized that people aren't going to want to reread what they've just seen on the documentary. So it kind of gave us the freedom not to have to focus on his Parkinson's and just focus on what he experienced in his life and, and the good times and then the bad times and, you know, all the, all the players that he loved who have passed on, he wanted to kind of celebrate those guys, but also convey the, the heartbreak of, of losing Doc Ellis and, and Willie Stargell and John Milner. I've never written a book and I'm not saying I'm right. I've never written a book assuming, well, they've seen the documentary. Therefore I don't need to cover that. Like that, I, that's an interesting way of looking at something like, do you, mm-hmm. Are you assuming that most people who are going to pick up a copy of Cobra are sort of Dave Parker fans and therefore probably watch the documentary? Or did you just view it as, ah, oh, this is kind of nice. It makes my life a little easier. A little of both. A little of both. There, there were a lot of folks that came that, that I, I had seen on um, social media and Twitter saying this documentary is amazing. It's so sad. It's so touching. You know, we, we've seen so much of Parker dealing with his Parkinson's and they really went deep on it. So it's not it's not something that that we wanted to really focus on. He wanted to just tell the story that that's kind of like the epilogue of his life and what he's dealing with now. But he wanted to put you in the car with him and Larry Demery spring training going to a beach party uh, that Stargell was throwing. He wanted to have you in the car with him and the boys. Um, Every now and then uh, via Facebook DM, you pepper me with questions about uh, book PR and stuff, which I appreciate. It's flattering. And you wrote uh, last December, you said. You can spend money promoting your book either on radio shows or the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you might get both. You can only spend your money on one strategy. What would you choose? You have access to the highest levels of both strategies, but you can only spend money on one. What do you pick? It's actually been interesting watching you promote this book. Now that you're sitting here on the other side a little bit, what, what are the best ways to promote a book in 2021? If you have access to the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, I think print and, and, and large-scale national broadcast TV morning shows, they drive radio. You know, radio is always looking for ideas. And if they find something in the wall in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, they'll make 20 minutes out of it for their for their morning shows and and drive time. So I do believe that we we ended up doing about seven. Parker did 70 interviews last month on the radio. Yeah, it was was pretty significant. Um, You know, we got a little print here and there. But for the most part, I do believe uh, that print national print and national television drives radio. Is it weird to. (laughs) Obviously, it's his book with you and he, he it's his stories and blah, blah, blah. Is it weird to sort of, because I've never been in this position, you bust your ass. This is a, clearly for you, this is a major labor of love. The book comes out and he's doing most of the, uh, they want Dave Parker, uh, understandably, like they want Dave Parker to tell stories. 
is it weird to then kind of sit back and watch the PR happen? And mainly you're in a way sort of a side bystander to a certain degree. I mean, that, that, that's the deal. And you know, that deal going in, Yeah. you know, but when, when, when people see the book and, and, and folks that you really respect and admire, see the book and they know, they know, you know, what you put into it, what your contribution was and, and have them say how much they, they love the book or it was great. And, and to see, you know, a guy like Dave's iron, you know, go on Twitter and, and show everybody, this is a big book, you know, tremendous work by, by Dave Jordan. That gives me all the, uh, the reassurance in the world and, and, and satisfaction. Does it live up to the hype? If you find a story that you want to get into, and if it's a place you want to be for 24 months, then yes, it does. <laughs> it's so, oh, I mean, it's so maddening. You got to admit, like, it's like, it's easy to lose yourself and lose your sanity a little bit in the world of the book. Do you not, did you not find that at all? Oh, absolutely. But I, I like a lot of these stories, I just felt, I would, you know, come home and, and from, from doing a few things and be like nine, 10 o'clock. And like, you know what? I'm going to spend an hour with, uh, with Demery and Parker at the club. Right. And uh, I want to spend, uh, spend some time with Stargell and, and, and Sanguine and Al Oliver and, and hanging out at the uh, steakhouse Lowry's in Chicago. And, you know, it, it, it became like this little diorama of sorts. And, and you, you know, all these little characters and, and, and these people, and you just become a part of it. And, and it's really, um, that's how I, I just got so invested in this story. I want to answer one more thing. I am fascinated by this. So five years ago, you wrote a book with John Diaquisto, which you, which you referenced uh, called Fastball John. And these are in many ways, my favorite kinds of projects. And I'll tell you why I looked up John Diaquisto on, I know who he is, but on baseball reference lifetime record 34 and 51. He hasn't pitched in a major league game since 1982. So it's been 29 years. He was not a household name. He was not a superstar. He had, he never won more than 12 games in a major league season. I love books like that. Like I love, I do. I really do. I love projects like that where, you know, it's not the odds of it being a huge, you know, blah, blah, blah seller, but there's something that calls you to it as a writer. What in fuck's name makes a guy say, you know, what book I'm going to write, you know, my book, I'm going to do the John Diaquisto book. Well, basically I, I had started a, um, uh, I had a startup company called InStream Sports, and this is an idea. This is pre-Players um, Tribune, you know, hooking up athletes and fans, and it was like an author-athlete platform. And I had started in like 2011, and I started going through Facebook and finding different athletes, and I, and I struck up a friendship with John DiQuisto. Now, here's the funny thing. Johnny D was um, seven, picked 17th overall in 1970, and for most folks, remember, he had this fastball he basically threw like 101 miles an hour according to bill james and rob nyer only nolan ryan in the 70s threw faster than johnny d so he was at, a, at an ilk and a level where a lot of the, the greats of the game whether it was ryan or even tom siever would approach and be like you know johnny you, you your fastball is amazing and this and that and the other thing so he had the respect of his peers at the time so in his mind he was always thinking you know like i'm one of them and which is you know what he should be because he was a minor league star and um, the, the Giants just like overthrew him for three years. He threw like 250 innings the first three years, seasons he was in the minors. It was crazy. He blew his arm out, but he was still considered um, a peer among, among the greats of the game. And he had friendships with Pete Rose and, and, and Joe Morgan and all these, all these other guys, Willie Stargell. So when we started in stream, he said, I'll introduce you to this person. I'll introduce you to that person. He introduced me to Billy Williams. I did a piece with Billy Williams. And then at a certain point, he said, I want to write a book. I had some troubles in my life. I never got to tell my story properly. I, I didn't get out in front of my story. I want you to help me write a book. 
and we'd already written like four or five pieces together that had gotten a lot of traction around the internet. So I said, fine, I'll help you write a book. We tried, we got an agent, we tried pitching it. We couldn't, we couldn't sell it, you know, and nobody knew who I was. Certainly nobody really knew Johnny D'Aquisto or remembered him, but we ended up doing it through Amazon. We ended up making a profit off it, made some money, sold, you know, 3000 copies or so. And that kind of gave me the credibility that people would go to somebody like Dave Parker and say, this is the guy to, to write your book. Did you enjoy doing it? Johnny's story was great because we, again, we dealt with the music and stuff. So I'm sending, I'm spending like a whole night writing, listening to Fleetwood Mac. And uh, while I'm going, I, I just took, you know, 30 or, or 34 songs that he liked and I would just listen to them on over and over and over again. And that was a strategy we employed with, uh, with Cobra, where I was just listening to Marvin Gaye while I was writing for six months. It's funny, I don't talk about this that much, but we're friends on Facebook and I've kind of followed your passion for this book and you've been all about Dave Parker, Dave Parker, Dave Parker, Dave Parker. I always find it a little sad. It's a relief, but then it's it's kind of sad when a project ends. You lived this book and you lived Dave Parker. I don't know, do you feel like you're the last guy at a wedding and the doors have closed? Like, what does it feel like at the end of a... It's, it is it is sad because, you know, but my, my, my happiness is that I still get to open the book. I still get to be in that world when I want to be in that world. There's maybe a dozen guys that I can just pick up the phone and call them <laughs> because of everybody I spoke. I made some friends, you know, every so often I'll get a call from Parker, like during the NFL season and be like, do you see that play, you know, and blah, 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 blah. So that's nice. And um, there are some other guys that every so often they'll call me up and just to talk, especially, you know, to your, to your point, when you talk with a lot of minor league players, these are very sensitive feelings that they have. Because mm-hmm. these guys didn't make it. So we would have long, deep conversations with some of these guys, and it would get it, it would get a little teary-eyed sometimes. And occasionally they'll call me up and they, I just want to talk. And we just talk. Have you had the awkward moment yet where someone says, I want to write a book. Can you write my book? And you're like, uh... I've had about a half a dozen of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of them. Like, well, you know, I'll talk with somebody for an hour. I'm like, man, I should write a book. Why don't you help me write my book? What's the reply? My reply is, um, let's see how things go. Yeah. I mean, what do you say? You know, it's just, I, I'm, I, I, I got to, or, or I'll laugh it off and just say like, I got to get through this one first before I can think about anything else. Uh, let me ask you a final, final question. Dave Parker obviously has had a, you know, had a fantastic career. He is in that world of the Dale Murphy Dwight Evans, you know, he's right there where you're like Bill Buckner, 2,700 hits, basically 339 home runs, 290 average. Is Dave Parker a Hall of Famer? Dave Parker's holistic resume passes the burden of proof for enshrinement in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. When you vote on the Hall of Fame, there's six metrics that you have to go over. And that's just not the, the statistics or the playing record. There's playing ability, there's character, there's integrity. And there's also the contributions to the teams that you played on. Now, Dave Parker, in the latter part of his career, took up the Willie Stargell mantra of leadership. And he basically raised Eric Davis, Cal Daniels, and Barry Larkin. When Barry Larkin was elected to the Hall of Fame, he made sure that not only did Dave Parker and his wife come with him to Cooperstown, they stayed together in the same house for the weekend. He made sure that Parker sat up front when he gave his speech to 50,000 fans. And he told them all, Dave Parker, help me get here. So... You know, in terms of the contributions to the teams that he played on, I think he was like much more than average, immensely more than average. And his playing ability, he was the most talented player of the 1970s. He was drafted as a catcher. He didn't put on an outfielder's glove until he was 19 years old. Six years later, he's, he's a gold lover. And he 
holds a, a mark of assists that hasn't been touched since 1977. Dave Parker, like the Roger Maris of defensive outfielders. He had this one epic season and nobody's really even touched the, the assist record for whatever reason. I don't think he's getting in, but I think there's no shame in that. That's one thing I, I think uh, sometimes is forgotten when we talk about the Dale yeah. Murphys, the Don Mattingly's, the Dave Parkers, or Dwight Evans, or Keith Jay Hernandez. Jaffe says that too, and that's a great thing to say, that you know these old guys, these, all of them are, are dynamic athletes. And I hate when people are like, well, he's not a Hall of Famer. Yeah. I always think it's weird in a way. Like, why are we defining their their careers based on whether they have a headstone in a museum in, in upstate New York? It's a little bit. So I, in a way, actually, to round it out, I feel like your book, I feel like books like these are really important, and I do. And I think they're important to remember that guys like Dave Parker uh, mattered and had an impact. So I uh, I commend you. Sincerely, I commend you for doing this book and Thanks, for handing in 229,000 words, which is one of my favorite <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, man. So thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time, Jeff. Appreciate it so much. I want to thank today's guest, David Jordan, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can purchase Cobra wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and giving the show a nice review. I make zero dollars and zero cents for doing this. It's all about word of mouth. Music is by the terrific MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding.